If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I need to confess to you that as I was looking at this passage in preparation for this morning, this was, um, this was one of those passages that, that poses somewhat of a struggle. And it, it does so for me as I'm preaching through it because you could very easily, if you had been here the last several weeks and you had went through the other parts of Hebrews that we have went through, you could see this as a simple continuation of what we had already looked at. And some theologians who have looked at the book of Hebrews look at it as a long sermon or a couple sermons. And if that's the case, you could easily come to this part of it here in chapter 9 and really begin to believe that uh, this guy is just repetitive. I mean, he's just repeating himself. Now, as a preacher, I'll tell you that sometimes that's needed because sometimes people don't listen the first time or the 35th time. And so there's repetition there. But I, I want to tell you that, that after looking at this some more, I, I see that there's something very different about chapter 9, and he, he changes his thought. And if we just read through it kind of thinking, well, he's saying the same thing that he's already said, um, we're going to miss something here. And when I began to see what he was saying and, and began to see kind of the flow of these verses that we're going to look at this morning, um, it's clear to me that he is talking here about a problem that we all struggle with constantly. And if you don't struggle with this problem, one, or, one of two things are true. You're either the most spiritual person that maybe I've ever met, or you're not spending a lot of time thinking about your relationship with Christ. And I think you're going to see as we go through this that this is a problem that we deal with. And it impacts the relationship we have with God. So if you'll... If you'll stand with me as we begin reading in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most high place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak and we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and 
for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that are to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You may be seated. For weeks now, we have been looking at and thinking about the role that Christ has played as our priest. As a matter of fact, we understand that he continues to play that role between us and our Heavenly Father. As we looked at a few weeks ago, he is our advocate and he is the guarantor of our salvation. But there is a role that we have not considered. There's something that we've just simply not talked about because the writer of Hebrews has not brought it to our attention yet. We understand that God does not allow sin into his relationships. God does not have relationships with people who are sinful, not personal, intimate relationships. Because he does not allow sin, because he is holy. He does not allow sin into his presence. He, he simply does not want it there. And that poses us with a problem because we are sinful. If we go back, as we often do, and as really I think you have to do when you think about your relationship with God, as we go back to the book of Genesis and we look at the fall and what happens there, and we look at Adam and Eve and their sin against God and the broken nature of the relationship they had with God, we see that when Adam and Eve sin. They're shameful. Right? If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that when Adam and Eve sin, shame comes into the world. Shame is a result of sin. When, when God comes to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the evening, do they go out and run to God excited to see Him? Well, no. They go and hide. For the first time ever... In their entire lives, instead of running out excitedly to meet God, they run and hide in shame. We see it even at the end of that passage, what we think of as the fall, because they, they talk to God about being naked. And God wonders what, what's going on, with, or he doesn't wonder, he knows, but God, God inquires of them how they even know that. They'd never experienced shame before. 
They had never been at a point where they could not have fellowship with God because they had always lived in a perfect state. But once they sinned, they no longer could have that relationship with God. No longer did their conscience draw close to God. Before this, they had drawn near to Him without any problems, without any circumstances preventing them from doing that. But now their sin has made fellowship with God problematic. And I want to tell you this morning that that continues to be the case with us. Obviously, if you do not know Christ, sin causes a huge problem, a problem that you cannot overcome in having a relationship with God and having fellowship with Him. But most of you in this room this morning know Christ. You've placed your faith and trust with Him. But I want to tell you that oftentimes, sin continues to be a problem in our fellowship with God. And it's not God's problem. Because if you look back through the book of Hebrews, if you look back through the entire New Testament, you will find that when God has forgiven our sin, it's gone. He doesn't kind of set it aside to bring it up again one day. Now we do that. We do that in our relationships. You probably have done that in your marriage. You probably maybe have something right now in your back pocket that you're waiting for the day to pull out on your spouse to end an argument. If you don't, it's not that it's a bad thing to have. Sometimes ending arguments is good, but it's not a good thing to do. But that's what we do, right? That's what we do with our friendships. Don't Most of the time we want to have just enough that we've done more for our buddy, that we've got enough hanging over his head that one day, hey, uh, I need to move, or hey, I need you to come help me do this. And he remembers that prior thing that you did, and so he's kind of obligated to do it. That's not how God works. That's not the way God functions. When God removes our sin, he does so completely. As a matter of fact, we have been told previously that he saves to the uttermost. It's complete. His forgiveness is for all of our sin. So when sin begins to cause a problem between us and God, when our relationship with God begins to suffer because of our sin, it's on us. It's something we've done. God doesn't run away from us. We run away from Him. God doesn't stop communicating with us. We stop communicating with Him. And this passage gets to the heart of God's redemptive plan of our conscience. Because it is what is going on in our conscience that prevents us from fellowship with God. See, it's necessary that our conscience be redeemed, that our conscience be transformed by what Christ has done. And this passage lays that out for us. It lays out for us what happens in Christ redeeming our conscience. First, let's, before I tell you how, 
he does that. Let me tell you first, because this is what our text does, tell you how it doesn't happen. He begins in chapter 9, and especially in verses 1 through 5, of giving these very specific details of what the, the tabernacle looked like. He is talking here about the tent that the people of God traveled around with. It was the tent that, that God had given Moses the instructions on how to, how to make it. And they would later take the layout for that tent, and they would have a similar situation in the temple that was actually built uh, by Solomon. So he gives this description of all of these things, and it's very ornate, and it's very specific. This wasn't the whole thing of, hey, go do it yourself, and it'll be okay. Uh, I think this says something to us about our worship, that God just doesn't say, hey, go do whatever, and whatever's cool, and whatever's fine, whatever makes you feel good. You know, when did God start doing that? I, I guess it was sometime in the 70s maybe, but it's, it's never happened before. So he gives them this specific layout. He says in verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, how they should worship, and then the earthly place of holiness where they should worship. It was a tent and it was prepared and it had two specific sections. And in one section, the priest would go and they would make their offerings. In this place, he tells us in verse 2, there was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. And this is called the holy place. And that's where the, temp the, the priest would go and they would do their work. And then there's a second place, the place that we've talked about many times as we went through the book of Hebrews, where we see in verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And it had specific things. Look, it had a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered on all sides with gold. And within this Ark, there are a few things. He says there is the golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, or the Ten Commandments. So they had very specifically, you would know what it looked like. If you walked into this place, of course you wouldn't because you would have been struck dead immediately, but if you had, you would have seen this laid out just like it was described. You would go in and have the Ark of the Covenant there, and it has these things in, in it, and then it also says that on top of them, verse 5, above them were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So the very top of this covenant had these two large angels over them, and the mercy seat was the place where the Spirit of God dwelt, and blood was put on, this, um, on the Ark of the Covenant. That's where the blood was sprinkled. And once a year, he tells us, and you've heard this plenty of times, the priest would go in and he would make the sacrifice. But if you think about this picture, since none of you would have been the priest, none of you would have been there anyways, but just go with me on my imagination journey, if you will. None of us would have been the priest or the high priest. So what did we have? We had to stand outside this tent and imagine what was going on in there. We had to stand outside. Now, we would have the description. We might know what's supposed to be going on in there, but we, we don't have that. And think about if you're standing outside of this tent, 
And from time to time, you see the presence of God falls on this place, and you know that just, just inside, just past this, this first and this second curtain, is God's presence. But you're outside the tent. And if you were able a little bit to make it inside the tent, if you were one of the priests, you could get into that first section and you could do your work. But there was a second curtain there, and it always hung between you and that most holy place. And you were not allowed to go in there. It didn't matter what God was doing in there, what God was saying in there, you were not allowed in there. And there was one guy out of a whole nation that got to go for one day out of 365, and he could go in there for a few minutes. But even when he went in there, it was to quickly make a sacrifice for his sin and for any that you might have committed. And that was it. That was your access to God. And what that tent did, what that first curtain that stood there in front of all the people and the second curtain that was there for everybody but the high priest, what it did is remind you that you could not have fellowship with God. It stood there to remind you that you were sinful and therefore you could not have a relationship with the one who had created you. That type of setup, that type of thing does not clear our conscience. See, he tells us in verse 9, if you skip down there, he says, according to this arrangement, all of these things, the priests did their, the duties that they had, they went in and they made their sacrifices, they offered the blood. He says, according to this arrangement... Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worker, the worshiper. He says that's the arrangement. To have a relationship with God, you have to have your mind changed. To have a relationship with God, you have to have your conscience perfected. And he says here the arrangement that God had with his people in the Old Testament would not make that possible. How sad it is to think about that the arrangement that they had with God could never give them what they needed. And the reason for that, the reason the arrangement they had with God could never give them the perfection they needed is because they had nothing to offer God that was perfect. They had nothing to offer back to God that was in exchange for the perfection that God wanted. They could have all the gold lampstands they wanted. They could have all the gold arcs that they wanted. They could make all the sacrifices they wanted. But that was not enough. That was not acceptable to God. So the best they could settle for was an arrangement that would not offer them perfection. As a matter of fact, this arrangement, if you look in verse 10, only deals with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The best they could do 
is try to get their body right by what they ate, what they drank, and what sacrifices they made until a time that was appointed later on. So all of this work that they did would not make them perfect. But this entire system points them toward Christ and a time when God would allow His people to draw near to Him. See, here's the problem for us. The forgiveness that they offered, the forgiveness that was offered in the old way, it would cause them to hold on to the guilt of their sin. See, they would go, and I mentioned this last week, and they would make a sacrifice, and before they left, the sin would be back upon them. I think you and I, we have no problem telling people that we've been forgiven by God. Some of you might have a t-shirt on it. Some of you probably used the slogan. I bet we had a song. I didn't pay enough attention this morning, but we might have had one this morning that used that term in it. We use it all the time. We talk about the fact that we have been forgiven. We sing about it. We proclaim it. But living as if we have been forgiven is something totally different. See, most of us act like we still live under this old way of doing things where forgiveness and perfection could not actually be experienced. But what God has called us to do is live lives as if we have been and because we have been forgiven. See, you and I continue to beat ourselves up about things that God doesn't hold against us. That God is no longer concerned about. God is not concerned about our past if we have been forgiven. And what that does is mean that when we do not have fellowship with God, it's our fault. Which is a sin. Which means we just continue the cycle of living in sin that God has forgiven. He doesn't want us to live these defeated lives where we're constantly looking at what God has done. God has forgiven us and gives us a perfect conscience. And if we continue to struggle with that, that's our doing. Listen, I know the world holds against you everything you have ever done. The world loves to look at you and find your faults. Matter of fact, you don't have to go that far. There's other people in this room that might like to look at you and find your faults. What's funny is some of them have a lot more, but they like to find you and find your faults. Your spouse may do that. Your children may do that. Your boss at work may do that. That's their business. God does not function that way. God does not sit around and pick out the things that you've done and bring them back to mind. I think sometimes we're reminded of our sin in times when God wants us to speak to others and help others. When God points somewhere and says, hey, you used to be there. You can speak in their life. You can help them out. But we're not guilty. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned last week, God has declared us innocent of everything that we have done if we've been forgiven by him. 
So why would we continually beat ourselves up about things that God has forgiven? That will keep you from having a firm and vibrant relationship with Christ. If you cannot forgive yourself the way God has forgiven you. If you let those things continually beat you up. Listen, this doesn't mean that sin doesn't have consequences. It doesn't mean that we don't have to pay those consequences. But between us and God, the debt has been settled. We've been forgiven. So how do we get that? God gave them this whole long list of things. He gave them this tent, and he gave them these rituals. He gave them, as he said back in verse 1, regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. So if that wasn't good enough, how do we get a forgiven conscience? Well, he tells us, see, in verse 11, he tells us that our perfect conscience is given us through the perfect blood. He says, For when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the mean of his own blood. See, if we go back to verses 6 and 7, we see this temporary forgiveness that's given through the blood of animals. But we're told here that Christ's work is better. He passes through this greater and more perfect tent. Look, God uses the same things. God does not change. So God is still using the same things that He did before. So instead of this earthly tent, instead of this earthly curtain, there's a heavenly one. Remember that tent, if you go back to the Old Testament, that tent was just a representation of what was in heaven. So instead of going through this tent, instead of Jesus getting off the cross and and walking into Jerusalem and walking into the Holy of Holies and pulling the curtain uh, aside and, and dying right there on the Ark of the Covenant, he didn't do that. Because remember that, there was temporary forgiveness there. The Bible tells us that he, he went to the heavenly tent. One that had not been crafted with human hands, but one that God had made himself. And he went to that place, and that is where he died. And that is where he shed his blood for us. There's no hope in the blood of goats and calves, but in his own work. As a matter of fact, we're asked the question in verse 13 and 14. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If animals, if the death of animals can serve to to give them this temporary sanctification for, for their flesh, if they could eat the right stuff and drink the right stuff and go and make a sacrifice where an animal was killed and the blood of that animal took their place, if God allowed that to sanctify their flesh, 
how much more will Christ, His Son, dying, purify their conscience? Well, obviously, it's eternally more. Because the end of verse 12 tells us that He secured an eternal redemption. I want to tell you three areas where our conscience works against us when it comes to our fellowship with God. And these are not mine. I will not take credit for them. They're Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in London in the 1800s, he gives us these three. Think about this. Think about these with your own mind. How often is your fellowship with God stopped because of your knowledge of your past sinful acts? If you're like me, it's often easier to remember the bad things that you've done, especially when they hurt someone else, than than to remember the good things. And how often in your fellowship with God is it altered or stopped because you remember things that you have done in the past? It's pretty often, isn't it? I mean, I can be preparing for a sermon, and if I read something in the Word that you're not supposed to do, and it's something I've done, that weighs heavily on me. How often does Satan bring these things up into your mind and say, how can you, how can you follow God? How can you call yourself a Christian? How can you continue going to church when you've done this and this and that? How can you continue to serve God? How can you continue to say you love other people when you've done this and this and that? He screams loudly in your ear and reminds you of the things that you've done. Friends, that's not God talking. Because God doesn't remember those things. They're gone. His memory of them is not fake. It's not as if he's just filed them away and he could pull them out at some time. He doesn't know that you did it. Because when he looks at you, he does not see your sin. He does not see that sin that the devil's reminding you of. He does not see that sin that your friends are reminding you of or that your spouse is reminding you of or the world's reminding you of. He does not see that. It's gone. He doesn't know that you did it. When he looks at you, he can't see that sin because Christ's blood has covered it so much. It's not there anymore. Second thing he gives us. How many times has your fellowship with God been stopped because you remind yourself that you're sinful in general? That you have a sinful nature? It's how you were born. The Bible tells us that we are born sinful. We inherited that. Every person since Adam has inherited that from Adam. You're sinful. You're going to sin today. You're going to sin tomorrow. God's going to tell you to do something and you're not going to listen. God's going to command you to go somewhere and you're not going to do it. You're going to read his word, and he's going to say, do this, and you're going to say no. He's going to say in his word, don't do this, and you're going to say, yes, I'm going to do it. 
It's what you're going to do. Statistics tell us that everybody's sinful. The Bible tells us that everybody's sinful. So how can you have a relationship with God? You ever thought that? Think about how many people give up. We, we, we looked at that several weeks ago. How many people walk out the back door of a church? How many people would do it today? Maybe some of you are thinking about it. You're going to walk out this back door and you're never going to step foot in church again because you're not good enough. I'm glad the Bible makes it clear that we're not good enough. We can't get close to being good enough. But the blood of Christ has covered that sinful nature. God doesn't demand of us to be good enough. He demands of us to trust in Christ. But how many of you struggle? Because your mind reminds you that you're sinful. Maybe it doesn't bring up one past act. But it reminds you that you're never going to be good enough. We need Christ to cover our consciences with his blood so that we can be forgiven and stand forgiven. And the third, and this one is probably the most depressing. How often is your fellowship with God stopped or stymied or crippled by the fact that you have ongoing contact with a sinful world? Maybe, maybe your mind doesn't draw back to the things that you've done. Maybe your mind doesn't constantly remind you that you are sinful and will continue to be sinful. Maybe you just look around you and you see the sinfulness in our world. You see people who are murdered for no reason by their children in our county who take the lives of, of others and they don't care. That can impact your fellowship with God. My heart breaks every time I hear the statistics on the number of babies that we kill in our country daily. How has God not judged us for that? And that's where I begin to have questions. How has God not destroyed us for that sin? I look at countries invading other countries and wars being fought and planes disappearing off the face of the earth. And all of those things, regardless of what they were, what happened, are all a result of the fact that we live in a sinful world. Babies don't die in a world that is not sinful. Planes do not fall out of the sky. Wars are not fought in places that are not sinful. We live in a sinful world. And if we let that fact consume our minds, let me promise that it will ruin your fellowship with God. If you don't understand the biblical storyline that tells us that this sin that we experience is not a result of something that God has done, yet He has worked every single day, every single hour since to redeem us from our sin. Sin happened because we are disobedient. 
If you let this, this will ruin your fellowship with God. Think about how devastating these things are if not cleansed by the blood of Christ. Friends, if your mind is not constantly renewed, if your dwelling place is not on the things of God, your mind will be corrupted by these things and there are countless others. But Christ, as the high priest, has offered himself. The people who had to live under that old covenant, they they had to struggle with these things. Because these things had not been dealt with appropriately. These things had not been redeemed appropriately. They had to deal with what was going on in the world. They had to deal with their own sinful past because it had not been redeemed. But friends, in Christ, it has been redeemed. It has been taken care of. It has been wiped away. It has been washed away. It is there no more. And any time it is there, any time we deal with it, any time our conscience is not pure, it is from Our own doing. See, verse 14 tells us that He wants to purify our conscience from dead works. Our conscience that is prone to betray us and render us useless to God. He wants to take it from being that. Because friends, people who worry about their own sinful past and the sinfulness of their life and the sinfulness of the world are not useful to God. If that is all that consumes you, you'll never do anything for God. You'll never be useful for Him. You'll never reach out into the world. You'll never love the world. You'll never love your neighbor. You'll never share with them the gospel. But He has redeemed us from that to do what? Look at the end of verse 14. To serve the living God. That's what He wants us to do. See, I think that's the biggest barrier we have to serving God. It's not our time. It's not we don't have any money. It's not we don't know what to do. It's not that we don't have the words to say. You know, we use all those excuses and they're terrible and God doesn't accept them. But I think the biggest thing that keeps us from serving God as He has called us to do is the fact that we let our conscience drive us instead of putting on the mind of Christ. See, our our conscience continues to to act like this this veil. You know, this thing was big, and it was it loomed over anyone who stood before it. And it showed physically that barrier between them and God. And our conscience continues to do that. It continues to, to be like that veil. And it, it, it looms over us sometimes. We allow our past sin and the sin of the world to, to loom over us. And when we look at it, we, we see it as that thing that separates us from God. And we continue to believe ourselves to be unworthy to, to walk in and talk to our Heavenly Father. But He's forgiven us. You know, we don't get a free pass to sin. We, we don't get a free pass to do whatever we want to. As a matter of fact, if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. In, in thinking about sin right now, the, the Holy Spirit may have convicted you of sin that you've never repented of. 
Anyone who tries to have fellowship with God with unrepentant sin on their life will find it to be impossible. You just can't do that. God's not, God's not telling us that with this passage. He's not telling us that we can live any way we want. As a matter of fact, a person who claims to have a relationship with God while living and loving their sin is a liar. The Bible says that. And they're following after a false God because that's not how our God operates. Our God cares about sin. And he wants sin dealt with. He wants sin forgiven and removed. But listen, if you have been forgiven by Christ, if the blood of Christ covers your life, then God calls on you to draw near to him with a conscience that's been washed away. See, that, that veil, however, however tall yours is or was, however thick and heavy it is, the Bible tells us that, that when Christ took his last breath, that veil that hung in the temple, that veil that separated everybody from God, the veil that said you can't, you can't come in because you're not good enough, it ripped. Think about all those priests. They were standing there doing their job. They were doing their work. They didn't care about the, the carpenter who was being executed over on the hill. They, they didn't care about that. That didn't matter. They're doing their work, and all of a sudden they're standing there, and the veil just rips from top to bottom. What a wonderful sign to all of those men who are standing there doing the job that wouldn't work, doing the thing that would never get them to God, going through all the rituals and all the sacrifices, trying to get to him, and he, right in front of them, rips the veil in two and says, come in. A way has been made for you. Friends, we can have fellowship with God. The God who created everything wants you to have a relationship with him. And he wants you to do so through the blood of his son. For those of you here who know Christ, are there some things that are just getting in the way? Every time you start to do something for him, does, does your conscience throw up the past? Does it, does it say, hey, you can't do that. That's what you did. Does it say, hey, don't, don't do anything for God. Look how bad the world is. It's not going to matter. You're not going to do anything. You're not going to accomplish anything. Your mission trip's not going to matter. You witnessing to that person is not going to matter. Your few dollars in the offering plate, that's not going to matter. You going to church, it's not going to matter because look at the world. God wants you to redeem you from that way of thinking because he didn't put that in your mind. What he speaks into our mind is come, follow me. You're forgiven. I love you. I care for you. I died for you. That's what God says to us. Are there some things that maybe your mind needs to change on? Are some things that God needs to do to your mind? Listen as he speaks. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray?
Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful that we have another opportunity to come into your house and to, to serve you. God, we're grateful that you speak to us and that you work in our hearts and in our lives. We're grateful that we We, even though we are sinful, even though we do fall short, even though we don't always live up to your standard, you show us grace and mercy. Our sins have been forgiven. They've been forgotten about. They've been done away with. So God, I pray that this morning, as we have this time of invitation, that you'll speak to hearts. God, some here don't know you and God, they desperately need you this morning. God, I just pray that you would call out to them. I just pray, God, that you would help them to know of your love and grace. Heavenly Father, for those here who do know you, God, your, your heart is in redeeming our mind. God, it betrays us. It, that voice sometimes tells us we're not good enough, but God, you, God, you've forgiven us so much. God, remind us of your love and forgiveness daily. God, we thank you for who you are, and God, we thank you for what you're going to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.